This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by our friends at Running Warehouse. Spring is here, and that means it's time to put away the long sleeves and pants and bring out the shorts and tees. We're diehard fans of apparel from Rabbit, especially their easy tees and singlets. They're simply so soft and durable, a real staple of our team's daily running. This year, we've also been enjoying Running Warehouse's growing line of sustainable apparel. The Adidas Own the Run collection is both light on the run and on the wallet, perfect for new runners looking to build their running wardrobe. For even bolder colors, John G's Run Terra collection offers an ultra soft tee with a variety of super colorful options to help celebrate the season. Head over to runningwarehouse.com today to catch all the spring action. Also take a look at our podcast description for some of the team's favorite running apparel and must-haves, like the team favorite ultra soft rabbit easy tee, or chief editor Matt Klein's daily post-run ritual, a scoop of scratch coffee flavored recovery mix. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Docs of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today at the roundtable, we have myself, Nathan Brown, Dr. Matthew Klein, and then two amazing guests. We've spoken to both of these people before, but never in one room, um, and it is Jeff Burns and Dustin Jobert, and we're just very pumped to have both of you here. Uh, just a reminder, uh, Dr. Jeff Burns, he is currently the sports physiologist for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, um, got his PhD from the University of Michigan, still go Badgers, uh, but it's okay, and uh, and um yeah, so he's doing, still doing research and teaching adjunct on the side with them, but really pouring in his time uh, in Colorado Springs. And then Dustin is the guy that you probably know as Lab Rat Rundown, and he um, does a lot of uh, metabolic testing with shoes that we call super shoes um, and, and has been able to post a lot of his uh, independent testing through his Instagram again, Lab Rat Rundown, but also is publishing papers. And that's really what we're here today because these two work together on a paper to get it published. Congratulations to you all, where they talk about the effects of highly cushioned and resilient racing shoes on running economy at slower running speeds. So Jeff and Dustin, thanks so much for joining us today. Total pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Happy to be here from my closet, guys, of the new house. <laughs> Dustin got his, what was it, you said like three hours ago, the internet got hooked up in your new house? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the and, and we'll, we'll roll with what we got. It's pretty fun. So I know it's a crazy weekend for you. So thanks for giving up time and, and talking about shoes of all things. So um, I, I just want to give you both a quick platform just to introduce yourself maybe a little bit further and any recent things that you've been up to uh, in terms of your work. Because I know, Dustin, you just went through a transition in terms of where you're working with the university. So let's start with you. What kind of updates do you have for us in our audience since the last time you've been with us? Yeah, so I moved from from deep east Texas, where it's hard to recruit runners for uh for research studies, um, where I was at Stephen F. Austin State University previously, and um, now I'm in Austin, Texas, um, at a small liberal arts school, um, St. Edwards University, um, but in the heart of Austin with a, a great running community. So we're about to start a, recruiting for a project this summer that I'm excited about because I think that'll be a lot easier um, this go around. But yeah, so I'm, I'm a kinesiology faculty here at St. Edwards University. Um, I'm an exercise physiologist. Um, I, I'm always quick to tell you that I'm not a biomechanist. So, um, so, and I've been a runner all my life. Um, run a little less now, but still have competitive goals. So, um, yeah. And you just ran Boston this year, right? 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was my third marathon. Um, first trip out there. It was, it was, a. I honestly, it was our first trip flying with a four-year-old. So that was probably the biggest challenge. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and walking all over Boston with the the same four-year-old. Yeah. Um, but no, it was, I mean, the race itself was awesome. I mean, just nothing like it in terms of the, the number of fast people on course and then just, you know, the, the crowds on the roads and stuff was a great experience. Yeah. Very cool. Well, congrats on that. And, nice. and Jeff, what about you? What's, what's new in your world? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm uh yeah, I'm a physiologist with the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee. I'm the uh, uh, lead physiologist for our, our Paralympic sports. Um, so the last, <clears throat> the last year has been just a, crazy cool learning experience for me. Um, you know, taking, you know, what we know about, I would say physiology and sports sciences, training paradigms, stuff like that. Um, and then say adapting it or, 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 you know, uh, trying to, um, customize it for, yeah, for the different, I would say Paralympic sports and athletes where like really each athlete is this like hyper unique case study. Um, so it's been super fun to really blend physiology, sports sciences, and then also like, you know, some of my background in biomechanics as well. Um, yeah. So it's been a total blast. It's like, I, I feel like I, every day I have to like learn something totally new from like, you know, circadian patterns and athletes with visual impairments to, you know, like um, differences in mechanics of below the knee versus above the knee, unilateral, unilateral amputations, like um, thermoregulation and athletes with spinal cord injury, like crazy. Um, yeah, so that's been a blast. Um, and then, yeah. And then at the same time, getting to just essentially do science with the athletes and coaches. Um, so it's been, it's been cool. Uh, but then, yeah, on the side I've been able to continue, um, uh, research through, yeah, through the university of Michigan still have a faculty appointment there. Um, and yeah, I've been able to teach a little bit as well as just keep, keep going on this stuff, which is, which is a lot of fun. And, and honestly, I feel like I've been able to dig into shoe stuff, at least on the applied side, much more over this past year than I did when I was at Michigan, because now I have athletes coming to me, you know, like wanting to select shoes. And, and so both on the, you know, Paralympic side, as well as on the Olympic side, I've, I've worked with triathletes and runners, um, you know, kind of become, a uh, bit of a a niche um, yeah, person for those for for those athletes on um, that. So it's been it's been super cool to see uh, you know pretty unique populations of athletes like and how they respond to the different shoes. Um, yeah, so it's been that's been fun. And then I'm you know I also run competitively myself. I think we, we talked about that in the last one. Um, and then shortly after that, I saw you guys at the national championships for the hundred k. Yes. Um, yeah, I went and I ended up getting getting on the team and competing at the world championships later that year uh, for the U.S. Um, and it it was it was a it was a bit of a bummer. Um, I think I, I put together one of my best training blocks in a while, um, but I got sick the day before oh, the race. No way. Um, and I just felt like I felt like hell. Like my my heart rate was super high, and um, yeah, so ended up not racing quite as well as it was probably the first time that that's happened to me like competitively. Um, at least since college where we're kind of on the, on the big day, something just didn't, it didn't connect. So anyways, 
yeah, so that, that happened, but then, um, yeah, I'm actually going to be, um, I was going to race comrades this year, um, in, in June, but actually just decided a couple of weeks ago. And I think I'm going to go in now next week. I'm going to have surgery on my foot. Um, cause again, this is something I think I talked to you guys about, but something that's bugged me for the last couple of years and kind of held me back in training. Um, so yeah, so going to go under the knife and hopefully, hopefully kind of get back to my old self, um, training wise. So, yeah. wow. Well, good luck on that journey too. Cause I, yeah. I know, yeah, we got to talk at the championships about that a little bit. So I hope, um, this brings you on a good trajectory and then all the journey afterwards is smooth and gets you where you want to go. So yeah, I hope so. Cool. Well, again, the reason we wanted to bring you both together is because you both collaborated on a study. Uh, I read the title before, but it's the effects of highly cushioned and resilient racing shoes on running economy at slower running speeds. You published that in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. And we really want to get from you. Yes, we want to talk about the results and the outcomes and what you found. We'll kind of start there. But then we want to dive a little bit deeper and talk about the questions that you were, you've been asking that weren't that didn't even flesh out in the study necessarily or some questions that you have moving forward. So first, can can one of you I don't really care which one, but um, give kind of some just overview of what you found in the study, how you conducted the study and kind of how long that process takes. Kick that yeah, to Dustin because he's the he's the architect. Great, Dustin. This is all you. Then. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, initial question was most of the research that had been done previously with like the new super shoes. Most of it's on like the Vaporfly line, um, but um, you're looking at studies that pretty consistently like seven minute mile pace and faster. Um, and we basically had the question like, are the the benefits the same at slower speeds um, when you're considering? seven minute mile pace is almost what three hour marathon. And most people are running marathon slower than that. Um, even, even at competitive races. So, um, we tested at um, 10 and 12 kilometers per hour, which is eight minute mile pace on the fast end there. And like nine forty ish pace, I think on the slow end, um, just looking at the vapor fly compared to like a standard control shoe. And we did that in, um, 16 subjects, eight men, eight women, and basically measured running economy, measured their oxygen consumption, energy expenditure at those fixed speeds um, in those two different shoes and quantified the, the running economy benefits. So whereas previous studies had shown maybe um, upper 2%, up to 4% or so on average benefit of these different shoes, depending on like the, the comparison shoe you're looking at, at the faster speeds, um, we saw at the eight minute mile pace around 1.5% running economy benefit on average. So um, still substantial, but reduced compared to like the magnitude in our, our previous research. And um, at the slower speed at the, the 10 kilometers per hour around 940 pace, um, we saw that um, even less than 1% the benefit. Um, so that was kind of the, the average breakdown. So beneficial um, when you look at like the statistics compared to the control shoe, but reduced in magnitude compared to some of the studies out there at faster speeds and, and some of the stuff I've done in my lab as well at faster speeds. Um, so so that, was, that was kind of the big rundown. Yes. And so kind of breaking that down even further. So the aggregate was kind of that either less than 1%, 1.5%, depending on speed. How much variability was there between the subjects? Kind of what kind of ranges were you seeing? And um, what was your control shoe? Because that, like you said, matters between these studies, kind of what you're comparing the benefits to. Yeah, yeah. So um, our control shoe that I've, I've used in my lab consistently is the, the ASICS Hyperspeed. 
Um, so when we had that as a control shoe in the, the previous study I did at um, six minute mile pace, you know, that the vapor fly was up, up for 2%, uh, yeah, like 2.7% or so, I think, um, benefit compared to the hyperspeed. So at, at, to that same comparison too, you're seeing smaller magnitude in, in my lab specifically, but yeah, there we go. That's a great uh, off topic. Shoe. Yeah, like off topic shoe. version two, I think is a lot better, but that is a totally different conversation. <laughs> I enjoy one. that shoe. Actually, I think I think my running economy benefit tested in the lab might be uh, smaller now because I've run in, uh, my control shoe. I'm good at it now. I don't know. Well, <laughs> um, additional variables there. That's just well, that's yeah. me personally. Yeah, that's an error. Yeah, in that shoe more. Uh, okay. Uh, the you, got, you got it's on running warehouse pretty cheap. I highly encourage if you're if you like first one, you got to try the second one. Let us know you like it. I got to go. That's the hard go thing the now guy. is it's like finding finding a like a control shoe that you can buy. It's right. Like yep. they're getting rarer and rarer and rarer. I know. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's one of the questions I I have too about control shoes. Is this is to the hyperspeed. So for those who aren't familiar with the hyperspeed, the hyperspeed is a lighter shoe. You know, it's very lightweight um, and it's a little bit lower stacked. It doesn't have a plate. It's kind of just like a, a more traditional racing flat as we would think of traditional racing flats. Um, whereas if you were to take, you know, the shoe like the hyperspeed and instead of using that as a control shoe, using a Burke's Ghost, which people who are running kind of that, maybe eight minute per mile, nine 30 minute per mile marathon, they're not necessarily going to ever grab a hyperspeed and race in that for their marathon. They're going to probably grab maybe a Hoka Bondi or, you know, a Mizuno wave rider or something more like traditional daily trainer. Um, Jeff, I'll pitch this one to you. So when you think about um, the benefits that people saw between hyperspeed and, you know, these higher stacked resilient, what we call quote unquote, super shoes, how much of a difference do you think there would be if you used a different control shoe for somebody's debating, do I run in my ghost that I feel really comfortable in, or should I run in, I don't know, the Vaporfly or any of these other super shoes? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's like, uh, it depends on maybe two things dominantly that uh, are going to differ for everybody. So no, there's not going to be a satisfying answer here. No. <laughs> um, but, uh, science. This is science for you. That's why I ask it. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I'm, obviously the weight is is a that's a that's an easy piece to deal with. So like all things equal, that hyperspeed being so light is going to be very beneficial on that front. Um, but then the the other piece that kind of works into there is what the cushioning does. And that's where it's really complex for individuals because a little bit of cushioning is a beneficial thing, but at the same time, uh, a good bit of cushioning that is very lossy, that is EVA foam, that's not as, as resilient, um, is at some point, then it becomes a little too lossy, but that, that varies for everybody. So like some, there are some people for whom that, that like if we're talking the you know the Hoka you know Clifton or something like that, yeah. um, super light, uh, yeah. Or the maybe the Hoka ring cone is like maybe a little bit closer sure. to the in weight. Um, yep, it's that's a big chunk of that EVA foam that there are some people that like the the savings on their muscles that having that cushioning, even though it's not returning energy, might might supersede the um 
the the energy that you don't even get back from the you know the response of it whereas other people losing all of that energy might then become you know weigh that cost benefit analysis so it's going to be different for everybody but if i had to bet dollars to donuts i would say most people would probably be a bit more economical in like that light that light flat um like the hyperspeed now then like i mean how that then extends over a marathon though is like kind of the the then the next dimensional question that is i think uh we know less about for sure and there could be for some people that the damage that you do to your legs in that hyperspeed um if you're if if you don't have the structures to like really cushion yourself well you could incur enough muscular damage that you then your economy deteriorates at the end of the at the end of the race and you then become yeah it becomes less beneficial so we kind of have this game of like say like four-dimensional chess that we're trying to like play with these different variables um yes and yeah so but again if we we're just looking at the lab i would say for most people it's probably going to be more advantageous to be in that hyper speed and then the other thing that this is this is um, you know, this is a piece that comes up in testing these a lot. And, um, we can have Dustin speak to this a little bit later cause he's played around with this, but another thing that dramatically affects like how we, you know, how these shoes affect us is the surface that we're testing these on. So treadmills by nature, um, like any commercial fitness treadmill that you go and use, or probably most that you know, people have in their house of, uh, that are listening to this, I would say operate a lot like that Hoka shoe that is, is very soft, but it doesn't return a lot of energy. Um, but that's beneficial, uh, you know, to some degree. Um, so that, that slight give that that treadmill has, um, that makes you more efficient running on it. And that's where running on the treadmill, you know, a lot is made of the air resistance and, you know, putting it at an incline to better simulate outside, but really, the um the thing that might be most beneficial about a treadmill is the that compliance that soft deck um and so that you know even though most people will swear that running on a treadmill is like slower than going outside put your heart rate monitor on and i guarantee you at a speed <laughs> that you're running it's yeah. going to be easier on your body to run on that treadmill it may like you may feel like you're in a time warp and like it, everything just slows down and efforts <laughs> whacked out, but like your body physiologically is having an easier time than running that same speed outside. So then extend that to how we study this, like asphalt is very different than that. And so I think that, that that's kind of another dimension to how we test and assess these shoes where, um, yeah, the, 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 um, the stiffness of that treadmill deck will, will, um, you know, have a big, have a big influence on that. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think when I, what I'm hearing from you too, is some, somebody who's running that eight to nine and a half minute mile, big picture will likely, we don't know for sure, likely have a better, better running economy in a typical daily trainer. That's a little bit heavier than, uh, they'll have a worse running economy than in that, than the hyperspeed which then would accentuate the total benefit if you jump all the way to a super shoe, um, potentially for that person. So the, in theory, the less than 1%, 1.5% to some extent might bump up would be the, 
hypothesis. Is that correct? Am I following the train of logic there or not quite? Um, can you repeat not clear? that? <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to make sure I'm getting this. Yes. In, I, so, I guess, well, to, to rephrase kind of in that framework, I would yeah. say, you know, that eight to nine minute miler. Um, I again, I think that there's there's just going to be enormous variability of some people are just going to outright be more economical in that super light flat, but that may not be sustainable over several hours of running. Um, so that, that even though it's slightly more economical, it might, it may deteriorate over the marathon. Um, and then, so that's, you know, in one case, but then there are also going to be those cases that you alluded to where, um, there may be people that I would say supersede that lightness and get a a little bit more benefit from the cushioning in the, in the softer shoe. So, yeah, perfect. So that's one of the challenges, right? Cause we're, so we're testing them in a non fatigued state, right? We're we're doing shorter term stuff, but then trying to extrapolate it over a distance where fatigue becomes a factor. So like the foams and the resiliency, yes, we make these kind of, Assumption, maybe not predictions, maybe is the mm. better term than assumptions, but it's not that far off that whatever is going to happen, you'll be able to maintain. But as you're mentioning, there are going to be decrements like this kind of shoe, like you said, just to translate, that's going to take more work out of your musculoskeletal system to handle running in that. That's what we know about firmer shoes, less cushion shoes versus the more cushion runs and then adding resiliency on the top of that is a different equation. But that's where I think some of the challenge is coming is, yes, in the short term, we see these economy changes, but what's really happening over that long term. So that makes me wonder, can we test them in a fatigue state and see what happens? But that might be off topic. Just curious. My brain's going there. Yeah. And, you know, I can uh, maybe I can jump in on that and, and uh, come in, come in from left field. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so today, uh, just about two hours ago. I think this question of like the fatigue effect of these shoes and, and I think, I think this will come full circle to this study with Dustin. Um, and we can talk about this, but you know, for what it means, um, for this, you know, this smaller economy benefit in, in the super shoes. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've thought for a while that this, like this fatigue question is kind of the white whale of like the super shoes studies of like, how do, how does the economy change, over an entire marathon and it's like it's easy to think about testing that but it's like a pain in the ass to like do that testing because you're you know you essentially need to run a marathon and test your shoes right before the early stages and then at the later stages and that's um that's challenging because it's running a marathon. <laughs> is that, first of all, is that going to pass IRB? And then second of all, who's going to sign so, up for that? I was going to say, it's actually except fun maybe fact, Jeff. Yeah, I have. I I wrote an IRB that went through it um, right before I left Michigan last year. Like it got approved oh, wow. probably like a few months before, That's... and it's still it's still out there. So it's like I, oh. I have IRB approval for this study. Great. <laughs> so, um, but so I will say. I today, this is hot off the press breaking. Um, I piloted that study. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, this morning or not this morning, it was like midday recent, I, it was about two hours ago that I finished. I ran a marathon on the treadmill. Um, oh. 
And I had for those who don't know it, Milham, this is just a normal level for Jeff. This is just an (laughs) average day. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So had uh, went into the lab and um, yeah, we have Woodway treadmills in there and had the Parvo 2400 true on metabolic cart kind of tried and true. Um, Yeah. and, And I and I decided to take measurements at the beginning, middle and end. And my protocol was, um, I would run and the two shoes I was testing was my control is the Saucony Kinvara 12. So a couple models ago, um, again, I think I need to like go and stock up. I've actually heard, this is a tangent that they are going to be releasing the Kinvara as both a PBAX and EVA option. Is this correct? Oh, so that, that would be, I'm going to get in trouble for this. The normal, and there's going to be a Kinvara Pro as well. Okay. But there's, I've heard some other rumors about what you're talking about, but I don't know the answer to that. Okay. I'll take the Kinvara Amateur for a control yeah. shoe. The <laughs> <laughs> Kinvara Amateur, I like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so I use the Kinvara. And for for reference, and, and this will be kind of good context too, is like the last time I did testing across a suite of shoes on myself was last summer, and that's what I used as my control shoe. And I got about... At that time, I got about a 5% benefit in the Vaporfly and the AlphaFly um, relative to that. Um, so anyway, so I decided to use the, use that shoe again. And so I went, um, I did essentially eight kilometers. I broke it up and I essentially repeated the same thing three times. I went eight kilometers steady and then did four trials of one and a half kilometers. So you can think your listeners, that's five miles and then about four by mile. Um and the order I went was, um, uh, I did all of the running in the Kinvara, by the way. And this is, I think this is the important piece for this comparison. Cause again, this is actually in my IRB, but like I wrote an IRB for like a very elaborate study that I don't know if we'll ever do all of it, but it's like to get people to run two marathons because you want to be able to see if there's any change if you run the marathon in the control shoe as well as if you run it in the super shoe Um, yes but anyway so i ran in the kinvara so i ran that first chunk and then i went um you know as we do in these studies do it you know and this is what um did in 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 this study as well uh what you'd call a mirrored um a mirrored design where you go shoe, shoe B, shoe A, shoe A, shoe B. And so I went, um, was running the Kinvara and went alpha fly. And this was my super shoe that I was going to use was the alpha fly too. Um, alpha fly, Kinvara, Kinvara, alpha fly. And I did the trials at 16 kilometers an hour, which is about six minute mile pace. And then prior to that, I kind of, the eight minute or eight kilometer chunk, the five mile chunk, I did kind of like, progressing from uh, it was about eight minute pace down to about 650 pace through the first half and then 650 pace through the second half of it um and the reason i did that was like one i'm not in like um i would say high-end shape right now um we just talked at the beginning i'm gonna be getting surgery in about a week <laughs> um but uh <laughs> i uh, and i'm at altitude too so i'll like uh um give that qualifier but anyways so i i because i went for this last weekend actually um and i got to the very end the last trial and i was just like i was like bonking hard and like seeing stars i'm like i can't i'm like here i'm almost done but i can't finish it because if i 
run fast, I'm going to fall off the treadmill. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> which I actually did that a couple of weeks ago. I fell on a treadmill and it was kind of a, it's a very wild um, vestibular experience. But uh, anyways, so went, um, yeah, went, went a little bit like tampered it back a little bit on the like kind of middle segments. So anyway, so I did that and I repeated that three times. So you can think again, it was eight kilometers, four by one and a half K, eight kilometers, four by one and a half, eight kilometers, four by one and a half. So again, it's kind of like five miles, four by mile, five miles, four by mile, five miles, four by mile. Um, yeah. And, and essentially just took, took those economy measurements. So what I found um, <laughs> after you guys had to, had to bear with the methods, <laughs> paragraph, several paragraphs, um, <clears throat> pulled up here. The difference between them in the first trial was 2.9%. So the alpha fly was 2.9% more beneficial. And that's, that's, I would say, probably on the order of magnitude to what, you know, Dustin's seen in some of his studies. But I think it also speaks to the level of, like, variability that we have. Um, right. Again, I would say the last time I tested, I tested myself in the Freedom um, a couple weeks ago relative to the alpha fly, which is a PBAX chew, but yep. it doesn't have a plate in it. And I was about, I was 3% more efficient in the alpha fly. Um, so anyway, so I was 2.9% more efficient. The second round, I was 4.1% more efficient. Um, the third round, I was 3.3% more efficient, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> The most, like, as I was crunching these numbers, like, literally right before I jumped on this call <laughs> or this <laughs> podcast, after I got through the second one, I was like, whoa, interesting. And then I got the third one. I was like, oh, what? Like, the most unsatisfying thing. <laughs> like, I wanted kind to of, see like, 8%. I know. <laughs> and I will say the interesting thing is the second, that middle one, I felt the worst. And I will say I took, like, huh. less gels than I would because you, you don't want to mess up the 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 testing um too much but took fewer gels than i normally would but in the middle yeah i felt just like mechanically i didn't feel as good and i had even like written and written that in my log afterwards of like the middle one was the hardest one um but then at the end at the end the difference between the two shoes felt the greatest like when i was doing like that last trial i was like oh my gosh this feels like night and day like it, it couldn't have felt more different um so I was pretty surprised to see that. Um, and my my economy really didn't change through all of that either. Okay. And so there are, I think, two things going on there that, again, is extremely unsatisfying. But it's also good why we do these, you know, this would pilot. If I did that 10 more times, which I really don't want to do, um, I, I'm curious what, what would happen there, like what the noise is. Because we, I mean, there is, I think, a very definitive jump in that second round where, where it became, you know, more beneficial to be in the alpha fly. And again, it corresponded to my sensations of just feeling like not fluid. Um, but then the end, it's like a little bit noisier. So I think two things, one, I definitely wasn't maxed out. Like I would be at the end of a marathon, you know, like I was, I didn't feel like I was finishing a marathon. I felt like I'd been running a while and I was tired, but I wasn't, I wasn't at that, like, bodily limit that we take ourselves to. Um, and two, I was doing this on a woodway treadmill, which is, you know, those are rubber slats. And that, um, I would say has the potential to dilute 
the economy benefit of a super shoe a little bit because a I'm not going to be incurring the damage that I would on a on the pavement or on a you know a really stiff rock hard treadmill. Um, so I would say that the deterioration is probably not there. So I think my unfortunately my follow up might have to be going and running for like two hours outside and then coming back and doing the the test. Um, but so I think it, I think at first pass, I saw my takeaway was that like, saw a little bit of an economy deterioration through this with fatigue, which I think is, um, yeah, well, you know, what we might hypothesize. And I think if you, if you extended that to the muscular damage that you might have and fatigue in a marathon, um, I think, I think it stands to that, that difference might further blow up. Um, so yeah. Right. It's interesting to me that that there was there didn't seem to be much of a connection between how you perceived how things are feeling and your economy, which I think it was Donato uh, several years ago that did a study where they looked at um, like biomechanics versus perception, and they found that there things weren't really similar. Like the people couldn't tell like that one thing might feel really good, but then that wasn't actually how it was impacting their biomechanics which is interesting to me that or perception which goes back to the other comment right about like you know the how we feel internally is may not be matching like that's a totally different set of things than the biomechanics and even probably obviously in this case the physiology yeah i think i mean there's there's a little bit of both though in the sense that like on the second trial i definitely again i felt the worst in in i would say in both shoes but i definitely felt like I mean, through it all, I can tell you, it's like, it's crazy. The difference between an old racing flat and a super shoe when you run in them <laughs> side by side, like, and do a counterbalance yeah. design, it is crazy. Like it, like that my economy was only 2.9%. Like in the first trial was shocking to me because it's like, I'm like dreading putting the, <laughs> the flats back on. <laughs> but to your point, it's like, I, on one hand, I had that sensation of like that second trial of being like, Oh, I feel like way worse. And, and, you know, I would say it almost, they didn't feel any different relative to each other, but I felt less economical, which the, the, the funny thing is like looking at the numbers now, I was more economical in both shoes when I was feeling worse. Um, I was just much more economical in the, <laughs> the alpha fly. And then at the end, when it was like thinking there'd be a huge difference, it kind of came back. And it's to your point, it's like, there was, there was actually a while ago, um, I don't know if it, it might have been out of Ben O'Nig's group that had, they kind of proposed the comfort filter that was yeah. like, what the shoe that is most comfortable to us is the most economical. Um, but I think I'd remember, I remember hearing, I think it was Roger Crom say in a, in a talk he gave talking about the original Vaporfly study that you know, there was, there was, a you know, some, there was heterogeneity in the, how people perceived the, the, the vapor fly relative to the zoom streak and the audios boost of like, some people really liked it. Some people are agnostic. Some people weren't so crazy about it, but everybody was more efficient in it. And so like the super shoes were kind of the first thing to like, yeah, say like, 
your feelings don't matter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think, I think too, what's important about comfort filter too, is they had the two pronged hypothesis about performance and about injury. And so mm. those are two different ways to apply the comfort filter, which I think yeah. just for listeners too, because I think that's one of the, that's a distinction that's important is injury versus, you know, performance. I think another big misconception about running economy and what it really means for the runner is is the connection of running economy to performance. I think a question we get a lot is, oh, like is it how much faster am I going to run a marathon if I have 1.5% economy? So they're asking a performance question, not a running economy question. Yeah. So how do you, it's a, this is going to be another non-satisfying answer, but like, how do you discuss that idea of what does 1.5% running economy improvement really mean for my performance if all else is equal um, yeah. for my marathon? Uh, what, how do you answer that? How do you that answer that question? Yeah. And this is like, this is a big thing that, that didn't really, you know, talking back to the things that didn't make it in the paper. Um, I think this was a huge thing that Dustin and I talked about for, you know, for a little bit that I'm still, you know, I still am, I'm scratching my head a little bit, but also think like the way that, you know, just like everybody has variable response to these shoes, you know, some people might get a five or 6% benefit. Some people might get a one or 2% benefit. Um, just like there's, there's variance in response. The thing that is not talked about, but is equally true is there is variance in how you translate your running economy in a lab on a treadmill to running speed in the real world. Um, and you know, uh, Shalaya Kip had a really nice paper that around the time of, you know, I think it was in maybe 2019 came out that did, um, just some mathematical modeling around primarily around air resistance as well as um, VO2 kinetics of there's, you know, air resistance, you know, obviously you have like a nonlinear relationship with speed. So the faster and faster and faster you run, um, you know, th- theoretically speaking, if we had no air resistance, if we were running in a vacuum, um, your running economy would translate almost directly to speed. Um, one of the things that Shalaya got into in the paper is um, slight nonlinear uptick with VO2 across speeds. Um, but I would say it's the, the dominant factor there is air resistance. So again, if we had no air resistance, um, it'd be pretty close to one-to-one, um, of, uh, you know, economy benefit to speed benefit. Um, and so they did a nice, nice modeling exercise where they showed if you factored those two things in running economy, as well as kind of, um, you know, upward tick in, in VO2 across speeds. Um, the uh the the benefit obviously like gets less and less i i i have to go back and double check <clears throat> but i think the one to one mark was the like uh, it might have been around like a four and a half hour marathon um whereas then anything faster than that you start getting less of a return on your speed all the way up to a two hour marathon and we're talking more like two to three, you know, like it's about a two thirds. If you have a 3% improvement in economy, it's going to translate to a 2% improvement in speed. Um, again, that's at the elite level. Um, but, and then, you know, even slower than that, it would be actually more beneficial. Um, but the, uh, 
the tricky thing with that though is like that's just pure theory of like efficiency translating to speed like that is that i guess to put another way that's the assumption that you're efficient that's efficiency on the road translating to speed in the road how we translate like efficiency in the lab to efficiency in the real world is is and then performance in the real world this is another thing that there's just enormous individual variation like some people might be like i don't know really bad treadmill runners or good treadmill runners or like the way that they run on a treadmill may be very different from outdoors you know like things like that that may just have variability there so like that same group um you know uh wilder wilder um uh Hogkammer, who did the original the original Vaporfly study a few years prior to that? He actually did a, a cool study where they looked at um, changing people's economy in the lab with weights on the shoes, and then using the same weights on the shoes to change their race performances outside. And you saw this same kind of um, uh, I think it was it was pretty because they were running three k time trials, and I think it was a pretty similar speed i'd have to go back and check i think they were running somewhere between nine and ten minutes for a 3k um which is getting close to that you know like i would say maybe 215 marathon pace or something like that um like well nine minutes for a 3k would be 206 um 40 marathon pace and then 10 minutes would be like more like two uh like 222 um, so somewhere between 206 and 222, <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty fast. And, yeah. Anyways, fast. And I think I, if I, rem- if I recall correctly, um, they, they saw, um, uh, I think it was a similar, similar thing where it was about two thirds of the, like the economy change that they saw in the lab translated to about a two third you know, percent change in performance. So if there was a 3% decrement of economy in the lab, those people ran 2% slower. Um, but, but with that, there were, you know, enormous variation around each of those. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just everybody did that. It was like, you know, there might be one person that had a 2% change in economy in the lab and had a 2% change. So like the error bars on these were, were big. And I think that's something that gets lost in the conversation a lot is like how we translate our efficiency in the lab to efficiency in the wild is very, is I think very unique and individualized. Um, and so, yeah, I think that like, again, this was something I was thinking about on the treadmill today. Um, I'm running (laughs) like another reason it's very different doing that on a treadmill and running a marathon on the treadmill is like, on a treadmill, you're responding to the to the belt that is being driven by the motor. Um, it's still a substantial energy cost, right? Like similar to outside, but like it becomes, you know, the feeling in like a marathon at the end when it feels like the world is just slowing down and it's so hard to keep yourself moving forward. Um, it's a very, it's a different mechanical sensation. And, and I would say mechanical like interaction with the task of, just responding to that rather than having to like, like break and propel yourself. Like you, like that is it, um, you know, outside in the wild where like every step requires you to move yourself forward rather than, um, 
yeah, responding, responding to this kind of moving substrate beneath you. So I think that, that all kind of like, you know, this all hovers around this like very, you know, variability in how we translate our efficiency in the lab to the wild. That gets back to this study, I think, that we did that, you know, you have people testing, uh, like, I would say, still beneficial, but less beneficial at these slower speeds. Um, you know, those could those could be people that, you know, the way that the way that they translate those efficiency benefits in the in the, in the lab, um, it may not be the same outside. Um, so I think that's a, still a big question mark, but I think could potentially explain that because I think, again, coming full circle, I don't I don't think we put this in there either. But like the New York Times, you guys probably remember, like did that really cool big data analysis on on the shoes and they showed that basically this idea of the faster and faster you go, the more that that running economy benefit would translate to less and less of a performance benefit. It played out beautifully in their study where like the people running 220 or faster, I think got about a 3% speed benefit, like performance benefit. The people that were running, I don't know if it was like between 220 and like three or three and a half hours it was like 4%. And then the people running three and a half or four hours and slower, it was like five plus percent benefit um, in performance. So I think there's still there's still these other dimensions to the, the shoes that we're, we're, we're unpacking. But I think one of the big ones is how, how we translate, how individuals translate their efficiency in the lab to the wild, um, just in one dimension, but then over the four dimensions of, you know, time, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think is is kind of the other piece too that's interesting that you you mentioned that i and i remember really that 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 has gone back and forth where people have argued oh if you're an elite runner you're hitting the you know that you might get more benefit from these shoes versus a slow runner might not but that sounds like in terms of performance we might actually be seeing the opposite that somebody who is potentially already very econ economical right may get less performance benefit than someone who is not as economical Am I understanding that? Interpret that in that, like at least having a hypothesis, or not quite? Am I misunderstanding this? <clears throat> yeah, I think there are there are a couple, like again, maybe a couple things embedded within that. Um, yeah, because the uh, yeah, so i I don't think it I don't think it's related. Well, it's tough, but I don't think it's related outright to initial economy. So so. Okay. There have been, I think, a couple of these studies so far, and I think ours, this one included, where the degree of benefit somebody gets is not related to their initial economy. So, so less yeah. economical people aren't necessarily um, going to get more or less benefit. But to your second piece of like elite runners running faster and having greater forces, so that's actually another piece of this paper that I think we included in the, in the discussion that this is where, you know, Dustin really, you know, Dustin set this study up, planned it, executed it. And then he brought me in to, to help basically make sense of it mechanically. Cause it was like, had the results and, you know, it was kind of scratching his head a little bit. Um, and one of the thoughts on the change was, you know, when I first looked at the, I would say the demographics of, the the runners um and their their mechanics so like their stride frequencies i was looking at the speeds they were running at like 
10 and 12 kilometers an hour, right? So like 10 and um, eight and 10 minute mile pace. And their cadences were like really high or like higher than I would expect for that speed. So they were, um, they were like low 170s and high 170s at, at each of those speeds. And for otherwise, like given the, the body dimensions of the subjects, like they were, um, I'd have to go back and look, I think like maybe like five, nine, five, 10 on average. Um, and so I was looking at it thinking like, man, those are like, I would expect them to run with lower, you know, maybe in the one sixties at those, at those paces. But so what that told me was that they were probably not putting, they were probably, probably did not have very high peak vertical forces, right? So like you run with a higher cadence and you have lower overall force. And so then I got thinking, I did, did some, and then again, this is just, these were kind of like calculations that we slid into the, into the discussion, but I did some calculations just based on the very simple physics of being on the ground and off the ground. And we had, um, from the Garmin, the heart rate straps that they were wearing, we had ground contact time as well as the other pieces, which is, I would say from that device, it's a noisy measurement, but I think for the sake of doing just kind of gut check calculations, it's good. So using their ground contact time with their step time, which you can get from the step frequency at the given speed, and they're knowing their anthropometrics, so their height and their weight, I can make like very, I would say, simple estimations that are pretty, pretty close to um, like within a few percentage points of like, you know, a gold standard force sensing treadmill of their peak forces. So we estimated those forces and yeah, they were like, their body weights were like, um, like 2.1 and 2.3 times body weight of their peak forces, which I would say it's like maybe at those speeds, you know, again, this is where everybody's different and everybody has different force patterns. But if you were looking at like a population average, other, you know, other papers that have looked at forces, you might be expecting to see like 2.4 to 2.6. So so that was, I was like, well, this might've just been a sub, like a unique kind of subset of runners that had like just low forces in general. And so that then kind of led into this other high, this further hypothesis that like the, the forces that we put into the shoes, like these are, the shoes are just giant springs, right? Like they're these, they're these big thick pieces of foam that you compress. But what's interesting is like, all, all shoe foams, I mean, all springs have this, but they have, um, you know, essentially like, um, I forget the technical term for it. I don't think it's compression set, but it's, it's essentially the point at which it stops behaving like a linear spring. Um, and the, the colloquial term for that is bottoming out (laughs) where, you know, anybody who's running a thin EVA racing flat knows this feeling (laughs) where you land and it feels like the shoe is like, you know, it's no longer compressing and cushioning. It now feels like cardboard. Um, so that's when the shoe becomes essentially maximally compressed. So I got thinking of like, well, perhaps one of the things going on here is like when you start running at faster and faster speeds and you have greater and greater ground reaction forces, maybe there's a point at which you kind of saturate the shoe and really use all of that spring. So in um, Waterhog Commer's original paper, um, where they tested them at 14, 16, and 18 kilometers an hour, they really saw a flatline response. Um, and the thought was like, well, maybe that, that, like that speed is kind of a, that threshold that you start to really kind of fully saturate 
the the shoe and its its potential. And then below that, you're not running with enough forces to really fully compress it. And then you further extend that into the runners in this population or in this study that were running with, I would say, uniquely low forces and these really high step frequencies that they may have just really not been essentially using all of the shoe. <laughs> and so right. I think that kind of extends into it. Now, that being said, if there's, so that's just the outright, you know, economy change or benefit or whatever in the lab, again, that doesn't get into, and, and we didn't do much prognostication in the paper in this, but any, you know, that still means that you're, you're probably having some degree of like cushioning benefit from, from the really, really soft compliant foam, as well as, um, anything perhaps that, that, uh, the energy return over the the long time, long, long term might give. But yeah, I think that that piece, that was one of the, you know, one of the one of the pieces in the discussion that we thought might might explain that is that kind of, I would say, force force threshold that you might have of running, running faster in these shoes. Mm -hmm. So there there's it's hard to sum up everything that we just talked about, but I'm going to try to give a couple things. I think one uh, there's a couple things that are still unclear when it comes to the actual translation of running economy to performance, um, we just don't know what that's going to look like for each person for a myriad of reasons. Um, we also don't fully understand the effect of fatigue on our response to these shoes. You had the pilot study today, uh, but I think those two factors are really interesting. And, and another thing that popped into my head when you were talking about the translation of uh, running economy to performance was you talking about how the psychological side of things, when you put on the Kinvara, you almost dreaded putting it on after you were running in the Alpha Fly later. Just thinking about what that would be like as a runner, getting at mile 22 and thinking about, I got to get another four miles. If if your shoe is, is part of this terrible experience, that could go down a, a very south path, at least for a weak mental person like me. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that that could be another factor too. We're all weak mental people at the end of <laughs> marathons and long races. <laughs> We've been I broken down. <laughs> I just, I got, I finished my, the last one I ran, I finished and 10 minutes later, I just started crying and my wife was like, why are you, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. She's like, are you happy? No. Are you sad? No, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just crying. <laughs> this is like the, the reference to Rob Williams. Who's like, have you ever seen a marathon? At the end of the run, they're like, I'm alive. Oh. <laughs> but, but yes, it, 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 it breaks you. It breaks you down. <laughs> it does. Psychologically, so wanna, physically. It's everything. Yeah. You you referenced kind of briefly, and this was probably 30, 40 minutes ago, you referenced two things. One, you talked about resilience. If you want to hear more about resilience, we got to talk to Jeff before. We have like a two-part episode where he goes into material science about foams, talks in depth about terms like compliance and resilience. So go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Um, the, the second thing that you brought up was the idea of muscle breakdown in, in a flat versus a more cushioned shoe or something with more even EVA foam or something with that. Can you help us understand how cushioning in a shoe helps decrease muscle breakdown and fatigue during a run? Um, we know forces can't forces don't just disappear they go somewhere um so how how do shoes play a role in decreasing muscle breakdown i guess that's kind of my next question yeah, really quick so off topic uh the 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 midsole property episodes are some of our most popular uh episodes ever by the way they are. oh cool 
Well, maybe yeah. before before the um, uh, before the end, you can peg me on. Like I said, I finished wrapping up some of the data analysis on the actual midsole properties of some of these shoes, and I can give you a yes. Paper's not out. Paper's not written, but I can give you a teaser um, on some of those. You should do a teaser and then do a full episode on it because that'd be fun. Yeah. That'd be do that. fun. Stay tuned. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, so so the muscle the muscle breakdown piece is um it's related to yeah, essentially how our bodies function when we run is we function as giant springs, right? So we're running along and we orchestrate our, you know, all of our muscles and our limbs, really our whole body. I say like running is a whole body exercise, right? You are tensioning your whole system and to again, behave as this giant pogo stick that bounces along. And so with that, spontaneously, when you land on the ground, you have muscles that are functioning concentrically. So like your hamstrings, you know, well, actually when you land on the ground, they're going to be functioning eccentrically, but like, um, (laughs) really you have this like dance between concentric muscle action, which, you know, for your listeners, concentric muscle action is the muscle shortening. So it's like doing an arm curl, your bicep is acting concentrically. You have isometric, which is the muscle is basically against against resistance, maintaining its same length. And then you have eccentric, where the muscle is essentially um, uh, extending in length under a load that it is trying to resist. So if you're doing that same bicep arm curl and you're the weight was too much and you were giving it everything you had, but your arm was just opening up more and more and more. Your bicep is eccentric. So when we run all three things, all three of those muscle actions are going on all over our body in different forms and different like muscles, like simultaneously. It's this beautiful orchestration that just is constantly happening dynamically. But that part of that, I would say that breaking action when we run, that's dominantly eccentric action. Um, some of it's isometric where we're trying to transfer force while we maintain muscle length, but like, but yeah, so that, that eccentric activity that is, you know, that is essentially cushioning by decelerating the body as like our spring compresses. Um, and that, that is, that can be very damaging. Like if you look at, um, you know, eccent like what we would, I would say the dominant form of like eccentric loading that you might think in running is like running downhill. Um, if you run downhill for a long time, um, I think one of the interesting things is like everybody, so I know this like very viscerally, like through comrades. So anybody who's <laughs> famous, anybody who knows about comrades is you have like both the up run and the down run. It's an ultra marathon in South Africa and the down run, you literally are running like a marathon downhill the second half of it. And it's brutal. Like it, it just destroys your legs. But the thing that's fascinating about it is like every person has a different muscle group that they like complain about that. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, those downhills destroy your quads. Another person be like, oh my gosh, those downhills destroy your calves. Oh, those downhills just wreck my hamstrings. So I think it's like fascinating <laughs> that we all kind of have different like um, pinch points in the you know kinetic chain of what what is getting wrecked by this eccentric action. But so that's downhill. But the same thing happens when we run on flat ground where we're, you know, breaking self. And that that part of that is just, again, um, decelerating our center of mass, but also, you know, protecting all of our all of our structures. And so that, again, carries a cost. And, um, you know, Roger Crom had kind of this paradigm that they, they call it the cost of cushioning. That is essentially 
the cost to maintain this muscle tension and decelerate the center of mass safely so as to not, you know, whether it's uh, negatively affect any structures or rip anything or, you know, break or, you know, protect our bones and our other structures. Um, so shoes, that's why shoes like outright are generally beneficial, like more beneficial than being barefoot. So even though that there's a, um, uh, uh, cost to carrying the, the shoe on you, most people are have a greater benefit from just having like a very light shoe on to, to cushion their body. Um, so yeah, so anyways, so that's, that's kind of the function of shoes. And that's the crazy thing about the new generation of super shoes is they're just so much softer. So like they can do so much more cushioning, but then this gets into the like, um, you know, this is the kind of like the magic, the triumvirate of the, the shoes is like they're softer so they can do more of that cushioning. So we're essentially say we're outsourcing that breaking <laughs> from our, our, you know, our muscles and our tendons to this um, non-biological material on our foot um, that does not get tired. So, you know, like our Achilles tendon um, is this great spring that functions elastically but it requires energy, i.e. Our, gastro, our gastronemius and our soleus, um, maintaining tension. So there's a cost to that spring. PBAX foam, like, is a great spring too, and it requires zero ATP to function. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But uh, so anyway, so like these shoes, they're super soft. So they're, they're so much softer than even any other EVA shoe. Um, but critically, and this is like the magic is that they, you know, they're resilient, so they return that. And I think this this might be maybe review from the, the last episode, but that that idea of being able to both break and decelerate your body that otherwise, you know, costs us energy and also has, and this is maybe what you might have alluded, like been alluding to in the original question, but like there is the term that I would use is like collateral damage <laughs> to that. Yeah. Of like, um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the muscle fibers when we when we do when we when they function eccentrically, they they rip. And like on you know, on a on a small scale, like just going out for you know, that's why it's I mean it's the dominant reason why if you haven't run in a long time and you go out and run, you're really sore two days later, delayed onset muscle soreness. It's primarily from that eccentric breaking action of the muscles. Um if you look at a muscle biopsy after somebody has like severely eccentrically damaged their legs, like, you know, lots of downhill running or even lots of running, you know, normally I would say like the two things you can think of is like uncooked pasta is the like healthy muscle and spaghetti is the eccentric damaged muscle where you have like <laughs> nice parallel striations versus these just like bloody red, like soup, like tangled mess. And that's what, that's what like a histological slide of a, healthy muscle and, that's like, and eccentrically damaged muscle. Looks it's like. like a normal damage to a muscle with exercise. And it yeah. looks like that. And that's why recovery is important too. That kind of comes yeah. For our listeners, by the way, to get this, you have to go have people like, I think it was uh, Cal State Fullerton that did this many, many years ago where they had people run on a treadmill downhill for 30 minutes and they took muscle biopsies at the beginning and to end. So after you've been running downhill and crushed your legs, to add insult to energy, to insult to injury, they're going to do a punch biopsy in your muscle, which to get that 
tissue sample. They have to get, like, extract it from me, which is not a painless process. So I'm like, who signed up for this? Or they probably did, they didn't read the, the, um, uh, I should know this. Consent. Um, the consent form. <laughs> like, I don't need that. I think the other the other part that you just talk about with the eccentrics is there's an there's another study that talks about the stiffening of a limb when you're on a cushioned surface. So even when you have that cushion underneath you, your body reflexively stiffens, partially maybe for stability's sake, but also it's helping you with that deceleration. And so you're doing less excursion, so your joint is going through less motion, which is less eccentric contraction, which may contribute to less muscle breakdown as well. Um, this last part that I wanted to transition to is trying to get uh, practical to, to some extent and kind of speaking to the people who are in this category that this study addressed. So like these people who are running marathons in that eight to nine thirty minute per mile. Um, and how can we I'll use say really this... quick? Um, yeah, I want to add this because the point that you just made, like almost in passing, I think is actually a, a really important piece of super shoes that is. I would say overlooked, I don't say overlooked maybe, but like that idea of our bodies when we run on softer surfaces actually stiffen up, even though it feels like we are on something softer. So to that point of taking the joints through like less excursion, um, the same thing happens when we, I I think it's one of the reasons why there's like, um, you know, softer surfaces might be quote unquote protective. It's not I don't think it's because of blunting forces or anything like that that people think of because you don't. To run forward, you need to generate and sustain the same ground reaction forces. Like it's just physics. But the um, that idea of essentially like stiffening your body and taking your joints through smaller ranges of motion or that idea of like maintaining a stiffer system that might um, be more energetically efficient. I think we can think of the shoes that, you know, if a person has the same global body stiffness running in these shoes, yet the foam is much softer than the other shoe that they have the same global body stiffness, it would stand that thinking of a series in spring, their body has to be stiffening up to counteract that. So I think that that's another thing going on with with the shoes that's kind of less... um, uh, And again, it's hard to study because... um, those like the way people manipulate their body stiffness is going to be different. So when you do, if you do, you know, um, again, like Waters group had, um, they did that a biomechanics study on, on the shoes and the paper. And I think Ian Hunter, um, group at BYU also did, you know, biomechanics study and it was really tough to pin down any joint kinematics linked to this. But again, if everybody's kind of manipulating their body and, and adjusting that kind of global stiffness in different ways, it may be really tricky to pin pinpoint one, you know, one thing going on at the knee or the hip, because some people might be modulating their stiffness at the hip. Some people might be modulating stiffness at the knee. Some people might be in the ankle. Um, so that's, I think another, another thing going on is like what, what's going on within the system of the runner plus shoe. Um, yeah. I think that's that, that goes into the fact that these shoot these are tools, right? And at the end of the day, you need to uh, do these runners know or have the capabilities or experience to utilize them appropriately. Whether it goes back to can they actually utilize all the the, the foam to its maximum capacity to get the biggest benefit out of it, or the other question is how are they mo- can they and how are they modulating their own biomechanics, their own movement patterns 
to use that, right? Are they getting a benefit from using that movement? I would call it a movement strategy, right? Whether it's, like you said, modulation at the ankle, knee, hip, or some combination of them, we don't really know. That's it's a great question. That, but I'm not sure. Perhaps you know, but how we would measure the, somebody's ability to utilize like, what movement strategy they're doing, because that's that's going to get into such individual things. Because people are so unique, right? It's but can they can that unique movement strategy utilize this tool? I think is the interesting question. Yeah, and that's kind of the beauty of your job, Jeff. You get to do yeah. this with individuals, right? That's, that's the yeah. fun part, and that's the fun part of PT too. But like, you get to yeah. do this yeah. with individuals and try to figure out their thing. Yeah, um, and it's funny because I would say even through that, I feel like I have again in the last year getting to do this with so many different athletes of, of very high levels. Um, I feel like I have even more questions than like when I started because it's like you see one pattern in one person that's like, oh my gosh, this must be the key. This must be the like mechanical explanation. Um, And then it just doesn't hold in somebody else. So like a good example is um, I just had an athlete in um, that, you know, we were testing range of range of shoes and um what was really interesting was he had, he had very distinct mechanics in the sense that he, I would say, spent a lot of time on the ground relative to the air. So he had what's called a high duty factor. Um, and this is kind of the, the, um, you know, the perfect recipe for, um, but I would say I, I thought at first pass, um, the, uh, like, you know, when ASICs came out with the Metaspeed Sky and the Edge, they said these kind of like two different types of runners that, that it's like, um, best for. And I've tested other runners in both of those shoes. And generally speaking, they test like almost bang on similar. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear Dustin's take on this. Cause I think he's played around with them as well. But so anyway, so I'd kind of like written, I don't want to say written that off, but it's like the shoe, it's the same foam and like both of them have a curved plate. And I think the only difference is the edge has like the, the plate curves downward through the shoe rather than having kind of flat in the heel in the sky, like similar with the vapor fly or alpha fly is. So anyways, there's, there's also small drop differences and the angle of the, of the uh, four foot rocker is slightly different, but okay. Th- I mean, the components yeah. are this are very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think those subtle things, crazy thing. Again, I've had athletes that have tested just very similarly in both of them. Um, but then I had an athlete come in that, again, was this kind of like very, you know, I would say like yeah, high duty factor runner, like a lot long ground contact, not much aerial time. And he like really responded to the the edge, um, like distinct from any of the other shoes. And the fascinating thing was like his mechanics and I was measuring, um, you know, using inertial measurement units to kind of get estimates of how his body was functioning as a spring. Um the alpha fly was the shoe that he was kind of least beneficial in and, um, was his mechanics were, were very deviant from like the control condition in the alpha fly. It was like, it was putting them in a very different strategy. Whereas like the edge was very, very similar to, um, his kind of like native mechanics. Um, which to me, that was like, Oh my gosh, like, that's so cool. Like it's essentially like mapping on, but, I'll say I've also had other athletes that like the most beneficial shoe that they're in 
they have like very distinct mechanical patterns <laughs> in it. So it's not like a, this like predictive thing yet. Um, so it is. And you had but, me there. You hadn't, you hadn't finished. And I was like, Oh, yeah. is it the, the, you match the shoe that best supports yeah. like matches your mechanics? No, there's, it's not that simple. Yeah. But it could, but like, again, it could be that some people have just very distinct mechanical patterns that are persistent. Maybe. And maybe there are other people that have very like plastic mechanics that, you know, I don't know, but it gets, it gets back to like, I always, you know, I always say our gate, you know, how we run our, our biomechanics are very much like a fingerprint, right? Like, it's like every person is just different. And it's like, <laughs> I think it's like, I mean, I mean, the nice thing about super shoes is that we at least know that like, if you get in if you get in the Nike Alpha Fly or the Vapor Fly or the like Asics Meta Speed Sky, like those are kind of the, I would say the Vapor Fly and the Meta Speed Sky, like they're very similar shoes. And I would say by and large, like that's going to, that's going to get you most of the way there. But there are other people that like you might have fringy, I would say benefits or like slightly less response to, to some of the other ones that have more distinctive features. But yeah. Uh, Oh, I have so many questions. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was going to transition to the practical, obviously I kind of prompted that question, but I would do want to ask you in your testing over the last year with different athletes, the studies that come out obviously take time to get published. And by the time they're out, a lot of times the next model is available, which could have big changes. For example, like endorphin pro three, very different than from the endorphin pro two. Then you also have like endorphin elite, you, you know, there, there's, they, they just keep coming yeah. out. Have you tested any of the the new models that haven't made those studies, um, like the Dustin study that showed, you know, the Alpha 5 Vapor Fly and Metaspeed Sky kind of in this category of their own? Um, are there any new ones that you've tested with athletes that you've seen anything unique with or interesting? Yeah, I will say that the, the old endorphin, um, the original endorphin seems to be variable for some individuals, um, the new endorphin seems to be more uniformly beneficial. How's that? Um, (laughs) like, I think that it's, and the big thing there is just that the, the foam that like it's, they're all, it was always PBAX foam, but the foam in that, and one it's, it's a little bit lighter. I think it's a little bit lighter, maybe slightly. Um, but the foam, and I actually, I haven't tested, I've tested the old foam and it's has great energy return, but is not as soft as the vapor fly. And so I think there are some people that like just the way their foot interacts with the ground, like they don't need that, like that, that cushioning. It doesn't. So they might be equal. Like I was actually somebody yes, who that makes I test pretty equal, like the old endorphin, I would get almost, I mean, I was within fractions of a percent of the vapor fly and the alpha fly. Like it was pretty close. Um, but other people like, I mean, Dustin's original study had this, if it, it was like across the population was not as beneficial as the, the Nike shoes. But I think I've, I've seen very, I've even seen athletes that test better in that shoe than, um, mm. uh, the Nike shoes. And so in the, so, in the elite one, yes, yeah. the elite. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, not so the I pro. think that okay. that's a, that's a great example where they changed the formulation of that foam to be has the same presumably the same energy return because i think if you're using a piba foam you're gonna you're gonna it's gonna have probably mid 80s um but 
eighty percent, mid eighty percent. Um, they're just fun. They're claiming they're claiming ninety five resilience numbers. Oh shoot! Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, need to get, I need to get back to the lab in Ann Arbor and test that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's one worth confirming. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we referenced for a while. We're like, hey, there's a sh- the you know the PBAC stuff was yeah. going about like eighty seven or something, and then the Power Run HG. They're like behind the seat. Like, ninety five. Yeah. So I was wondering about that. Is the HG like uh, uh, um, HG's mercury? Said, right. They're saying nitrogen infused. <laughs> they're saying nitrogen infused PBACs. Phobes to- I believe. Toxic. Yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> it's actually, we're going to say it here. It's mercury infused PBAT. No, I'm just kidding. I think they should lean into that. <laughs> like, yeah. So powerful. Um, it's deadly. Do not eat this. Yeah. No, just kidding. Um, huh. Yeah. I was wondering when I saw the, the like the, the power on HG, I was wondering what the HG, cause my first, yeah. Anyways, it's mercury. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, um, anyways. But yeah, so that's, that's crazy. I didn't realize they were, they were touting those numbers, but um, yeah. So that's a great example where it's like, ah, I don't know, like I, this was something I had been hoping to start like prior to, you know, back in Ann Arbor, but was having kind of like an open source, like, uh, like just testing shoes and putting out the properties of them, you know, online. it's very easy to do once you, I mean, it's very hard to set up the protocol and work those machines and to have those machines because those are hundreds of thousands of dollars for these types of machines that can do this accurately. But like, you know, once I set up the protocols, I was like, I can just bang shoes out and get the, get yeah. these numbers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So now I'm super curious about that. 95%. That's insane. Yeah. Um, and I think just for, for the listeners too, he's again, Jeff's referencing a study that's coming out and it looks at a myriad of these foams and kind of these key properties that he talks about in our previous episodes. So go back and listen to that. And then I don't know, Jeff, if we can finagle you to come back and talk about that, that topic, I think it'd be super fun to, we'd all be interested. I'd love to hear your take on all of it. And I know everybody else would too. Um, I do want to transition to the final question and it is that practical application and just processing for people in this category that this study addressed, um, those people running that eight to nine 30 minute mile, how would you recommend them go through their shoe selection process based on the results of this study and your other thoughts, um, knowing that it's a complicated answer? Yeah. Um, I, there's like one half of me that just wants to be like, well, I'll just like, get either the Vaporfly or the Metaspeed Sky, whichever one's more comfortable, and then we stroll <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, that's like my safe answer. <laughs> but uh, um, that's like, that's my that's my money ball answer because it's like, I know you're going to get on base with one of those two shoes like pretty well. An- another one of these shoes you might like hit a home run in, maybe, but you might also strike out. Um, but anyways, Dustin would... Dustin would like probably definitively add the alpha fly in there. Um, and I'll plug that for him as well. Cause I think that's Great. again, a little bit, a little bit different mechanically. And when I come back on for our next, our next, uh, conversation around the foams and the constructions, I can talk about how the alpha fly is a little, little different. Um, but, um, yeah, when you go about thing again, it gets back to, um, you know, part of the benefit of these shoes is certainly the economy benefit of just the foams and the plate working together. And the other thing that we didn't get into the kind of two mechanical hypotheses was that like 
the plate may also have a speed interaction. And there's some thoughts around that, like some kind of previous, I'd say, pieces of literature, like um, one of my uh, buddies and colleagues, Evan Day, now actually works at Brooks in their their research group. Um, Literally just talked he, to him last weekend, by the way. Oh, really? Awesome. <laughs> we had him on. Yeah. So the episode's coming no out way. soon. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Great human. Um, him, him and, uh, and Je- Jennifer Sumner. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did Because he, you know, his his PhD work was around longitudinal bending stiffness yep. in shoes. And the first MTP had, joint. Yeah. Yeah. And he had yeah. some, some data points that kind of suggested that there might be a speed effect to that, to the economy um, benefit. And so I, you know, I thought that was one of the thoughts of like, well, maybe the plates, the way that they're interacting, like you gotta, you kind of have to be running faster to get the interaction, the beneficial interaction with the plate. Again, wild speculation and dangerous hypotheses. (laughs) But, um, so I think, I think when, when we start thinking about, you know, people who are running, you know, slower and, and in these shoes, I, I still think that, um, there are substantial benefits to the shoes that we haven't really unpacked yet that, um, that are probably going to be, you know, positively affecting you for both racing and training. Um, and so I think that, that is, that is a piece, but I think you will get that from just about any shoe that is, that has one of these next generation foams with a curved plate built within it. Um, and so again, that's, you know, Nike makes a couple, Asics makes a couple, Sockney has theirs. Um, I think, I don't know, I don't know where Brooks is at. I feel, I, I feel a little guilty for not knowing. Yeah, they're not there yet. That's okay. Um, it's not, it, they, they are, they have something that's on the feet of elite athletes that okay. maybe the that's current good. lineup, no. <laughs> yeah, I kind of figured it might be there. Um, Hoka finally uh, joined the club uh, that I don't think it's for sale yet, but eventually will. Um, it is, it is. Okay. That's good. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, but, uh, yeah. So I think like, you know, these, the, I, I, you know, my, again, my kind of go-to recommendations are generally like Nike Asics and, and Sockney. Cause we've seen, they've, they've not only like had them for a while and we have empirical data which is very important, but they've also iterated on them, which is also very important. The other one I didn't mention that, um, well, you know, we're, we'll have to like get Dustin and I back on again. Cause we're working on another project now where we have data on like both the spikes, but also, um, the Adidas shoes. And so I think the Adidas ones are a little trickier where they're like, I think the foam's good. And, and a lot of people tend to, I would say, on average have similar responses to Nike. I'm actually somebody who does not respond to the Adidas shoe very well. Like I'm, again, it's like I get about half the benefit that I get from the Nike shoes. Um, and, and it's funny cause that it's truly a shoe that like when I, when I put it on my foot, it feels incredibly comfortable. Like my first thought when I put the shoe on was like, wow, I would walk around in this shoe. Like this is kind of cool. Um, but when I run in it, I'm like, I, I don't know. It, it's not that it feels terrible, but I've had like, I've, I've tweaked my hamstring a couple of times, like running in it uh, over the last like couple of years. And it just doesn't, there's just something that like over the long term being in it, it just doesn't feel like it works with my, with my mechanics. And I think part of that is like, it's, it's the one that has, you know, it has, I would say it has good foam, 
but the way that they do the rigid element in it, that's not, it's not exactly a plate, you know, you have the curved rods and the heel, but the, the interesting thing is that those are, those are somewhat decoupled. I think if you actually cut it open, they're like flush with each other, but they're not a continuous element. And I think that that, again, just depends on the person. Some people it's no different and it works just like the Nike shoe. Um, or the A6 shoe, but maybe for some people it's like a little different. I don't know. Um, so again, I'm, I'm one that like, doesn't, uh, respond quite as well to that. But so that's why I'm like, I know I'm making a safe recommendation if you go with one of these others, like, um, but it gets back to, so your, your listeners who are running, you know, eight, nine, 10 minute miles. Um, yeah, I think all of those aspects of the shoes, there's there's benefit to be had there of having essentially this better elastic element under your foot and this plate that's helping you move through, um, whether that's potentially mitigating some of that eccentric muscle damage incurred over the course of whether it's a race or just in training. Um, but also the fact that it's, you know, how how you would be translating that that treadmill, you know, those treadmill numbers to to the race performances might be different. Because again, we have these, you know, larger data analyses from, you know, like the New York Times that would see for those speeds getting pretty substantial benefits. So it's like, you can think of like, if you're having an economy benefit, even if it's 1% or 2% over the course of a marathon, like that's, you know, an economy benefit is by definition energy you're saving, which is energy that you're not like, um, you know, think of like your glycogen stores in your body that that's like you're dipping into those less and less and less. And so if it's something that, you know, this is kind of a whole nother, I would say hypothesis for the benefit of them, but it's like, if you aren't going so deep into these like fuel reserves on your body, perhaps at some point there starts to be nonlinear performance changes where it's like, if you start to go much deeper, um, you have dramatically different effects on your performance. And so if like, you know, you're essentially saving calories on your body by wearing these shoes, that could be another thing that helps you in the long run. Um, so yeah, so I think there are a lot of pieces that, that suggest that they're still beneficial. And I think one of my, um, I don't know, one of, one of the things that I think is most interesting, but perhaps kind of brings it together is like, I remember, um, you know, some of your listeners might be familiar with Bernd Heinrich, which he's written the book, why we run. And he's also written ton of, ton of other books. books. It's again, yes, absolutely. One of my favorite, one of my favorite books outright, like not just a running book, but he's a, he's a physiologist, originally an insect physiologist. But, um, yeah, I remember he's, he, he has a, you know, a history in ultra running. Like he was a very, very good ultra runner back in the eighties. Um, and he just recently kind of like rekindled his pursuit in ultra running. And I saw him at a race, uh, Oh, this is, two years ago, I think. Um, and he's in his eighties now and he's going to be racing as a 50 mile race in Chicago. And sure enough, he's running in the vapor fly and he's running, you know, much, much, much slower than, you know, what, what he was years ago. And he could rip, you know, low six minute miles for 50 miles. Um, but you know, he's wearing the vapor fly. He said he, he does all of his training in them. Um, and I, I laughed when I first saw that cause I'm like, oh, the physiologist is keeping up on his, you know, locomotion research. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that's great. But I think it stands that one of my curiosities and there's another, um, another professor actually in Ann Arbor that I'm friends with that's, uh, he's in his eighties as well and just deeply loves running. And, and he was loving running in the Saucony endorphin for this reason. I think that that elasticity 
you know, something that we might lose as we get older and older. And we see this in the biomechanics of people as they age. And I think it's also true when we run at slower speeds as we have less, I would say like less elastic mechanics that that are less spring-like. There's more, say more eccentric and concentric action that these shoes are essentially like we're adding a nearly perfect elastic element to ourselves. And I think you know, for like the aging runner or even like slowing down, I think by, by giving yourself that there's, there's a, there's a benefit. And I would, I would, I would lean heavily on that. And that's why, I mean, one of the things I'm excited about the shoes is like, yeah, what they might do for people as we get older of like, you know, preserving, preserving those spring-like mechanics. Um, it's, yeah. it's interesting you bring that up because that is exactly what in terms of injury is my, my dissertation is on is on why older individuals seem to have such a high rate of Achilles tendinopathy, which I think speaks to the loss and the change in the tendon properties and elasticity. But also I'm kind of curious to see if there's any strength and power changes in the gastroc soleus, which yeah. is the primary propulsive muscle in running. So it's very interesting as I've watched more and more, and this is now testimonial, I've watched many, many older runners go who are my primary patient population that I work with now privately, um, being a professor, that they love these shoes. These are like, and there's a small group that's like, oh, I'm going to stand by my hyperspeeds or whatever, but they love them. And there's always like, I just want to train in this stuff all the time because it gives me that elasticity that I remember that we are losing, right? Yeah. So it's interesting though of what are, you know, I can't answer this right now, but are there any risks to that, right, in terms of your ability to utilize that tool? Yes, it's giving you that elasticity, and maybe I'm not saying that correctly, but are there any anything you need to do to prep for that kind of coming back very suddenly, or do you need to ease into this, which is always my recommendation? Like any new stimulus might feel great, but take your time to build in because you also you're, – you're responding to the shoe in more ways than you might realize – and that might be, you know, we don't get rid of forces, right? So things are going to be redirected in other areas. But I'm just, it's kind of funny that you say that because I'm seeing this more and more. It's like, I would, you know, we're telling people don't train in these shoes. And yet people are like, yeah, this is the only shoe I wear because I feel great. I'm, why would I not wear this all the time? Uh, it's like last year in the buildup yeah. for world championships, I would say I did about 70% of my training in super shoes, all of my workouts and like, uh, at least half of my daily runs, maybe even more. Um, and it, cause for, for that. And I think I, I mean, I had probably one of my best training blocks that I've ever right. had, despite even having, um, I actually think I, this is a whole separate conversation, but the, the Achilles struggles I've had, I've actually think the super shoes probably helped me more because of right. that. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I think so long as you adapt to the plate, and the mechanical interaction that that has, yeah. which has for different people is going to have a different lead in time. Um, that's something you have to be careful with. But once you have that and you don't have issues, I mean, I don't think that there are really uh, like any problems with doing a lot of running. And I think you can kind of do it almost like ad libitum, you know, of like what, what is most comfortable for you um, at some point. And I've, I've reached this too, in like different points of like your body kind of craves something that is like not a super shoe right and then you you give it to it um but i think if like again you have somebody who just loves running in those every day like i would not have any issue i would just maybe counter that of like well just know that like be careful when you change to something else obviously like another something so it's that idea of just being aware of you know stimuli changes um but 
I think yeah, doing a lot of training in them is not a bad thing. Well, I, I, thanks for giving that response too, because I think you can read a study like this and you can even read the conclusions and you could come to a lot of practical decision-making processes that look a lot of different ways. So from one of the author's mouths, it's great to hear your response. I also think I, I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but just to reiterate the, the context of this conversation is about the effect of these types of shoes on performance. My PT hat, when I put it on, there's a whole other conversation surrounding different injury types and all that kind of thing. Like that's a whole other conversation that that's not what we're talking about. So just make sure you contextualize this conversation in the performance realm. Um, but again, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. If you didn't, if you didn't notice, I'm sure you did. All of a sudden, Dustin stopped talking <laughs> in this conversation. He moved this weekend Internet got set up like three hours ago at their new house, and they had a, a delivery come in that he had to jump off for. So um, that's that's why it ended up being the three of us for the rest of the conversation. Um, but I'm sure we'll find another time for us all to get together. But Jeff, again, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing all your thoughts on this. And and we can't look we we look forward to talking to you again more about foams and the new study you've got coming out. Um, and if you have other questions that you want us to ask Jeff or Dustin in the future. You can send us an email at doctorsofrunningpodcast at gmail.com or comment on the video if you're, if you're watching via video uh, or reach out to us on our socials as well. So thanks again, Jeff, for, for joining us today. Yeah, totally. My pleasure. Love talking to you guys. Love talking to Dustin too. So we'll have to get him. Uh, um, I, I'm, I already am committing to a, uh, a follow-up with, with him. Um, nice. Yeah. Talk about this Great. Stuff. Oh, cool. Perfect. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.